Thanks so much, Brendan and Hannah. I often think we, we come to the sermon and our minds are, are wandering, and it's good just to focus. So I'm going to just read a series of questions that will highlight some of the things we're going to look at tonight. So what does it mean for, for you to be redeemed? What does it mean for you to be a redeemed person? And what exactly, or how much exactly, did it cost God to redeem you? What are you worth? How often do you think about how much it cost God to redeem you? Hourly, weekly, monthly? And what have you put in, in, in your life? What things have you put in place in your life to, to remind you of what it cost God to redeem you from death and hell? What about when you meet with other Christians? You know, you gather together as a bunch of Christians. Do you ever stop and remember that you're a collectively a redeemed people? What about people that you know and love who as yet are still denying Christ and not redeemed? Maybe it's a person that you sit, sit next to at work every day. Maybe it's someone you know from a sports club or someone you had lunch with today, someone from your family, your brother, sister, husband, wife, father, mother. How often do you stop and think what it means for them not to be redeemed and the full weight of God's wrath on them if they don't turn to Christ? That's some of the questions we're going to grapple with as we look at the Passover. So I'm going to invite you personally to pray. Take a moment to pray, and then we'll look at the text. Amen. I don't know whether you ever as a child sat on your grandfather's knee and you know, said, oh, tell us a story, Grandad. You've seen it in the films. Maybe you are a grandparent here and you have your grandchild and you said, tell us a story, Grandad. Imagine that there's a little boy called Reuben. It's about 60 years after the Passover. He's sitting on his granddad's knee and he says, tell us a story, Grandad. Tell us that story of the Passover night. So I do. It was a cold night when I went to meet with um, Moses, the, the, the uh, leader of the elders, and, and Dad went out and he, he came back and his, his, white, his, his face was white, drained of blood, and I thought, what's up? And he whispered to Mum, and Mum stared at me, and she ran over to me and she hugged me and told me that she loved me. And I thought, oh, what next? And we've had, the, we've had the boils, we've had the frogs, we've had the hail, we've had the darkness, we've had the locusts. What next? Went to the markets with Dad on the 10th day of the month, and we, we weren't a rich family, but we grabbed a, a, a lamb. It was, it was an expensive lamb, really expensive lamb. It was perfect, no, no spot, no blemish, nothing. And we took this lamb home with us. We, we, we weren't a big family, just me and, me and my mum and dad. And so we shared it with the Abrahams next door because they were a small family as well. 
And you know, for four days we, we cared for this lamb and we washed it and we played with it and we fed it and we had a great time. Mum was really weird over those four days, you know. She kept telling me she loved me. And she kept hugging me. And she kept rushing to the kitchen to make these things called bitter herbs. And I thought, oh, she must be pregnant or something. Then on the 14th day, it was a, a weird day, you know. I still remember it well because Dad kept telling me he loved me as well. And he kept hugging me. And come twilight, I knew it was about to happen. They, they got this lamb and they, they tied all the feet together. And then they, they got a knife and they, they slit the throat. And then they, they drained all the blood into a basin. And they, they hung up this lamb. And then they skinned it and they cut, cut into pieces. And then they, they cooked it. But then something really, really weird happened. Dad got this bunch of hyssop. Hyssop's used to purify the lepers. And he got this bunch of hyssop. And he dipped it in the blood. And he went outside to, the, to mum's newly painted door frame. And he, he got the blood. And he smeared it on the left side and the right side and the top. And mum just said... I love you. And then I poked my head out the door. And I looked down the street. It was just really weird because all these streets, all these houses had blood on the doorposts. Oh, apart from a few houses where, where the Egyptians lived. And then mum caught me going outside. And she yelled. She said, get back inside. And she had tears running down her face. She said, tonight, you must not go outside that door. And she sobbed and she hugged me. And she said, I love you. I love you. And then we sat down to eat. It was roast lamb. Not boiled lamb, not raw lamb, but roast lamb. And bitter herbs and this weird bread called unleavened bread. Mum had got to put the yeast in. I thought, she's definitely pregnant. <laughs> Except it was weird because... Dad turned up in this, in this long tunic, but it was tucked into his belt as though he was going for a, a jog or a run. And mum had taken all the chairs away, and so we stood to eat. And then she said, ready, steady, scoff. And we just scoffed this meal as quickly as possible. Then they told me to go to bed, but I couldn't sleep. It was midnight when I heard the first wail. It was a blood-curdling scream. And then a second, and a third, and a fourth, until the whole city was, was filled, was pierced with this wailing and this crying and this weeping. And mum came over to me, and she did this weird thing. She put her, put her ear next to my heart to see whether it was still beating. And then she hugged me, and she sobbed, and she said, he's alive, he's alive. God has protected him. but not so other people that night. You know, in thousands and thousands of homes, babies were killed. In any house where there's no blood in the door place, the firstborn was slaughtered. And there was weeping and there was mourning, but in the Israelite houses, there was rejoicing. And then Pharaoh summoned Moses. You can read about it in verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and, and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you requested. Take your flocks and herbs and go. Literally, it says, up, leave, go. They're not just leaving Egypt, they're being driven out, just as God promised. 
And the Egyptians urged the people, verse 33, go, otherwise we'll die. And so we left. We left celebrating in style. Uh, we didn't crawl through the back fence like, like the dirty dog. We left with heads held high. We were victorious because God had protected us. And we weren't just a small number. No, no, no. Verse 37. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. That's about 2 million people. Half of Sydney marching out of Egypt freed people, redeemed people because, verse 40, they'd been in captivity for 430 years. 430 years. That's the story of the Passover. It's a cracking story. You know, it's got more blood and guts than most of your James Bond films. It's got less gadgets, and it's a great story. What does it mean? Firstly, the terror. The terror. The mighty hand of God's wrath. The mighty hand of God's wrath. When I mention the word God, what do you think? Finish your sentence. God is dot, dot, dot. God is loving, God is kind, God is merciful, God is just, God is patient, God is compassionate, God is gracious, God is full of wrath, God is rightfully angry. It, it doesn't trip off the tongue, does it? Because for most people, they've got this lopsided view of God, and they've wiped his wrath out of existence. But that's the picture of God you get in Exodus chapter 12, a God who is rightfully angry and a God who does pour out his wrath. Sure, I could just focus on the, the rescue in this story, and I will focus on that, but to understand the rescue, you've got to understand the wrath. God is portrayed as a judge, the judge of the earth, who, who visits his people, who comes down to his world, and he pours out his wrath and his judgment. You see, when we talk about the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord with his people, it's not just the comforting arm around the shoulder. It's not just the cuddles. The presence of the Lord means his, his wrath and his anger and his judgment. And it's about doom, destruction, and devastation for the Egyptians. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says about midnight. I personally, I the Lord will go, will visit throughout Egypt. I'll be present in Egypt if you want. How is he going to show his presence? 12 verse 12. On that night I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn, both men and animal, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt because I am the Lord. Or verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians. Or verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. There's no escape from the palace to the prison. God pours out his wrath in judgment on the Egyptians. This is the mighty hand of God, a powerful hand of God, acting to judge, pouring out his wrath and his anger. And you're probably sitting there asking questions like, 
You know, so is God a, a baby killer and is he a mass murderer and why does he just kill the Egyptians and why all the Egyptians? Why not just Pharaoh? And they're good questions. Just for your information, the firstborn wasn't just the babies. The firstborn was every firstborn in the family, young or old. And why all the Egyptians? Because all the Egyptians had disobeyed God. They were all following their own little Egyptian gods, their tin pot gods. They were mocking God and, and imprisoning God's people. They were all guilty. They're good questions, but they show what a lopsided 21st century view of God we've got. Because, friends, God has every right, listen carefully, God has every right to pour his wrath on whoever he chooses. God has every right to destroy all who've rebelled against him, every man, every woman, every child has walked on this earth. Because God is God. And he's holy and he's righteous and he's pure and he's just. And he's completely just in pouring out his wrath on his world. Because nobody deserves, nobody deserves redemption. Nobody's worthy of being saved. And friends, to meet face to face with your creator is a terrifying thing because his rightful wrath is waged against us. I wonder, have we just lost that side of his character? When was the last time you heard a sermon like this? It's by a guy called Jonathan Edwards. It's called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Listen carefully. The strongest have no power to resist him, and nor can any deliver out of his hand. He's not only able to cast down wicked men into hell, but God can most easily do it. What are we that we should think to stand before God, at whose rebuke the earth trembles and before whom the rocks are thrown down? The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher to an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is the course when once it's let loose. Oh, it's true that the judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance has been withheld. Oh, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mightily and there's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. It's a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked in his sense as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. It's terrifying, isn't it? That picture of God's anger, God's wrath, and yet that's what we saw at that Passover night. God striking down, God smiting all those who were against him. And let me just say that if God were to, to come down to Sydney tonight and visit Sydney tonight, it would not be two million people who are walking heads held high because they trusted in Christ. It would be but a mere handful because most of Sydney is too arrogant and too proud and too stubborn, thinking they can just play Russian roulette with God and just take their chance and stand before him on the last day. It'll be okay. Have you grasped the right wrath of God that is poured out against every man, woman and child because we've all turned against him? Now, why have I pushed that so hard? I've pushed that so hard because it's only in light of his wrath that you can marvel at his redemption. So secondly, the triumph, the mighty hand of God's redemption. Because in the midst of death, 
there's life. In the midst of wedding, there's calmness. In the midst of fear, there's this peace. This peace that passes all understanding. Because God visited the Israelites that night as well. But look what happened to them. 11 verse 7. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Or 12 verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Or 12 verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood. He'll see the blood on the top, top and sides of the door frame and he'll pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. See the picture? God is choosing to pass over, literally to protect them. He, he does visit them. They do experience the presence of the Lord, but it's a, a presence of protection and not wrath. They've been redeemed. Not redeemed from slavery, not redeemed from oppression, but redeemed from death. That word redemption, it just means to buy back. It's a bit like when you, know, you go to the cash converters because you're strapped for cash and you, you put your surfboard in and you go back a week later and you, you pay some more cash for your surfboard and buy it back. God is buying back his people. But my question is this, why were the Israelites protected? What made them worthy of protection? It wasn't their race. It's not because they're Israelites. It's not their skin color. It's not their hair. It's not their goodness. It's not their achievements or their looks. It's not because next door celebrated the Passover. What made them worthy? Blood. Blood made them worthy. The blood on the doorpost, the blood of the lamb that had been shed because according to the Bible, Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the, of the person is in the blood. And the people have taken God at his word, they've sacrificed a lamb, and when God visits, he sees the blood, and he says, yes, a death has taken place. And if there's no blood, the Israelites would be in exactly the same footing as the Egyptians. But they're redeemed because they're sheltering under the blood of the lamb. They're redeemed because God chooses to pass over them. See, on that dreadful night, there was a death in every single house. Every single house throughout the whole land. In the Egyptian houses, the death of a child. In the Israelite houses, a death of a lamb. Now do you see how costly redemption really is? It's blood shed, it's life sacrifice. That's what it costs God. The blood is like a sign, a sign to the Israelites of God's mercy and God's protection and God's deliverance. And a sign to God of his justice. He must be just because a life has been taken, blood has been shed. So I want to say to you tonight that redemption is found in Jesus alone. Your redemption is found in Jesus Christ alone. So you come forward 2,000 years. Do you remember when Jesus first stepped into the world and he gathered his disciples together? And what, there's a guy called John the Baptist. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says these words. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you can imagine all the crowd thinking, he's gone mad, it's a man. The Lamb of God? 
But John knows that this is the lamb. This is the, this is the sacrificial Passover lamb who will take away the sins of the world and then come forward to an upper room just before he dies. And Jesus is there with his disciples and they're celebrating Passover except there's no lamb. You spotted that at the Passover meal? At the Last Supper, there's no lamb. It's just bread and just wine. And Jesus says, this is my body, which is about to be broken for you. And this is my blood that's about to be shed for you. And then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he kneels down and he prays and there's sweat pouring off his body. And he prays these words, if it's possible, Lord, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. What cup? If you know your Bibles, there's a cup of wrath. The cup of God's wrath. You know, the wrath that was poured out on those firstborn Egyptians and the wrath that had been poured out throughout the centuries and the wrath that deserted poured out on every man, woman and child the wrath that deserted poured out for your sin and for my sin, for your arrogance and your, and your pride and your disobedience and for my selfishness. And the wrath of God that deserted poured out on, on me. And Jesus says, take this cup from me. But he doesn't. And he goes to the cross and he, he, he dies with, with blood dripping down his forehead and his body. And then he cries, it is finished. It is finished. Because the full weight of God's wrath, past, present and future, has all been poured out in that one time, that one moment in history. And that's what it cost God to buy you back. That's what it cost God to redeem you. Not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of his own firstborn son. Think about that. God's firstborn son. He becomes like an Egyptian. He's slaughtered so that God can pass over you. And I'm saying if you're here tonight and if you're here tonight and you're still saying, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take my chances. Don't, don't front up before God to face his full wrath, thinking that your looks or your personality or your persuasiveness or your goodness can do anything to stop that floodgate of God's wrath being poured out on you. Look at the cross. Look at the blood that was shed. And Jesus will say, but I died for you. Oh, oh I trusted in, in the God of Hinduism. But he doesn't save. His blood wasn't shed for you. Oh, I, I made up my own little gods, but, but they don't save. I'm urging you and I'm pleading with you, shelter under the blood of the, of the Lamb and the blood of Jesus. Come to him because only he can redeem. Only he can redeem you from eternal death and eternal punishment and eternal wrath. For those of us who have... You know, we're like the Israelites, aren't we? You know, heads held high. Celebrating, rejoicing. 
God has passed over. We can look forward to that day of God's wrath with no fear. We don't need someone to keep telling us, I love you, I love you, I love you, and hopefully in praying, will it be okay? Because we're sheltering under the blood of the Lamb. And it's all been poured out on him. I want to just finish by saying there is some great value in rituals. There's some great value in rituals. You see, God said to the, the uh, Israelites in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24, do this as a, a lasting ordinance. You and your children, every year, keep the Passover. And you know, every year they did. Every year in a family home, then the temple, they kept the Passover year after year after year. And you imagine the kids saying, Mummy, Daddy, why are we having this, this, this roast lamb and these bitter herbs and this, this, this bread without yeast? And their parents would have a smile on their face and they'd say, because, because God redeemed us that night. And then Jesus came and he, he transformed the Passover. We don't celebrate the Passover anymore. But what rituals will we have in place to remind ourselves and to remember what it costs God to die for you? See, rituals are, are not boring. They don't just stifle all sort of spontaneity. They're very helpful, refreshingly helpful. They remind us. They, they, they imbibe our consciousness into our memories. They teach us things. So the Lord's Supper is, is a ritual, isn't it? And let's not discuss whether we do it weekly or fortnightly or monthly or yearly. The point is that it's a ritual. But it's a very powerful ritual. As, as one body, we take bread and we take wine and we, we look back to the blood of the Lamb that was shed so that you and I can be redeemed. What are the rituals you have in your life? You know, when you get together with friends, do you, do you ever stop and have a meal, stop at your meal, and you break bread? And you say, we're redeemed people because, because of the blood of the Lamb. I don't know what rituals you can put in your life, but it is helpful to constantly remind yourself what it costs God to redeem you and to buy you back. I'm going to finish just by giving you one more bizarre application of the Passover from the Apostle Paul. Just flick over to 1 Corinthians 5. And with this I'll finish. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 7 and 8. It's on page 809. The context is there's an immoral brother, someone who's claiming to be a believer, and he's about to be expelled, sent out of the gathering. And Paul says these words, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And you're thinking, what? The point is, friends, that after the Passover, the Israelites celebrated this feast of unleavened bread for a longer period. 
And Paul is arguing here that Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed once and for all. We're now in the period called the period of unleavened bread. And every day we're in that period until he returns. And how are you supposed to live until then? Not with the yeast of immorality, but with the yeast of sincerity and truth. He's saying, if you really have understood how much it costs God to buy you back, then get rid of the old yeast, the immorality, the ungodliness, the hypocrisy. Rid it out, expose it, and live with the yeast of sincerity and truth. See, he demands sincerity, he demands truth, he demands holiness. If you've really understood what it cost for God to redeem you and buy you back. Let's pray. His blood is all my plea through grace divine alone to set the captives free it speaks before the throne his blood is all my plea a wondrous cleansing wave it reaches even me its virtue now doth save his blood is all my plea naught else will satisfy that I might ransomed be and not forever die Amen